anyone's interested in like kind of building social media numbers, there's a formula and it, it's really easy to remember. It's, it's the four E's. Welcome to the Gig Boss Podcast, where musicians go to learn how to navigate the new music economy. My name's Adam Meckler, and it's my mission to get you the tools to have a thriving career in music. And sorry about that teaser there. That's a little bit of my conversation with Dave Chisholm. We actually spend the majority of our conversation discussing artistry, but he dropped some real great knowledge on social media building as well. I just want to tell you a little bit about last weekend. I was down in Minneapolis again playing with the Hornheads. Uh, the Hornheads is the horn section that tours with Corey Wong which features Mike Nelson on the trombone and Kenny Holman on the tenor saxophone. Mike is really the brains behind the Hornheads. He uh, has always been the horn arranger. This was with Oliver Lieber, and he produced Paula Abdul, Aretha Franklin, and Chaka Khan, and did music for Mission Impossible 2. Jellybean Johnson, who played drums in Morris Day in the Time, and Kirk Johnson on the drums, who plays with New Power Generation. Uh, J.P. Dallaire on the keyboards, who tours with Michael Bolton, and of course it was it was called uh, St. Paul on the uh, Minneapolis Funk Call Stars. So it was St. Paul Peterson, who was in the movie Purple Rain, and who was on the podcast recently, talked about his experience with Prince and touring with Kenny Loggins and Peter Frampton and Donny Osmond and all those various different people. So it was just like it was rad to be back in that scene. But but the kind of funny story we're setting up and we're getting ready to to sound check. And Mike Nelson standing next to me, Mike, the trombone player who does all the horn arrangements. And he his phone starts ringing. He looks at it and it's Wayne Bergeron calling him. You know, Wayne Bergeron, for those of you who don't know, is like maybe the greatest lead trumpet player on the planet. He's this really famous. He's played on like all these Hollywood films and he's out in L.A. He plays lead trumpet in Gord Goodwin's big band. And, and uh, it's just kind of known as like the lead trumpet guy and of course i'm there to play lead trumpet with mike so it's just kind of a hilarious i was like dude come on wayne bergeron's calling you when i'm about to play lead trumpet with you uh but it was hilarious and kind of fun and i didn't used to get nervous ever i used to be just like nerves of steel and now it's like because i'm farther away and like maybe i'm not performing i'm definitely not performing as much as i was although the quality of my performances is always super high which is really cool in terms of like the bands that I'm playing with, it's like always projects I want to be doing. When I was full-time freelancing and, and kind of like adjuncting at different places, piecing it all together in different ways, I was playing with like a million different bands and then sometimes it was stuff I didn't want to do. This was just a really fun, it was fun to get back in the door and it was a great reminder that like the vibes are always super positive with these guys and I can totally hang. I can totally hang. Like I shed my stuff, I was ready. We got in there. We crushed it. It went great. It was super fun. Everybody was there to have a good time. There's just not a reason to worry when when you're prepared. And generally, like, preparation is the anxiety killer, you know, meaning it is the anxiety slayer, meaning if you're prepared, you're less likely to be anxious about the thing. All right. That's it. I want to tell you about that gig. It was super fun. But today, today... I've got Dave Chisholm on the show. Dave is this amazing artist. He's an amazing artist, both as a musician in a couple of different genres and as a comic book artist. He's a comic book artist. And one of the things that we talk a lot about in the podcast and one of the things that I want to highlight getting to this conversation is the how Dave has combined all of his various different interests and put them into one place and has sort of become one artist 
of many disparate influences. And he's recently released this beautiful new graphic novel called Enter the Blue that's about this young woman who's coming up in New York City and she's got this wonderful mentor and there's this conspiracy theory surrounding Blue Note Records. It's a really fun fictional story. And then he also has another one called Chasing the Bird, Charlie Parker in California. And it's all about Charlie Parker, the bebop saxophonist. It's a graphic novel and it's it's more historically accurate. It's, it's not a fictional work. So Dave has found a way to combine his love of music, his, his passion for jazz, his passion for black music, and his passion for comic books into a really successful venture. And so I wanted to really highlight that part of him and his story uh, in our conversation. It's a long conversation. We cover a lot of ground. We talk about the, the racial impact of being a white dude who's writing about black stories in his comic books and what what he has to learn in a situation like that and maybe what all white dudes have to learn from his stories uh and i think there's a lot there that's meaningful and interesting and and which there's all kinds of stuff we cover it's really it's really wonderful so, so without further ado this is my conversation with dave chisholm dave thanks for thanks for being here to talk to me man i appreciate it thanks for having me adam i i uh, i'm happy to be here Awesome. So I first learned of you with your album Radioactive 2010. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a minute, man. It's been a minute. And I, at that time, it was like I was making big band music and I was hip to like Maria Schneider and John Hollenbeck and Darcy. Maybe Darcy. Yeah, 2009 maybe was when Infernal Machines was released. Sounds um, about right. Yep. Yeah. And Brookmeyer, of course. But you know, I, I felt a little bit like I was on an island, like I like there weren't many young people making original big band music, and, and then I came across your record, and, you know, I feel like so much changes over years, like we, uh, we lose perspective on how much we develop as artists over time, and seeing you sort of embrace uh, your various different loves of, like, the, the things you're artistically drawn to um, has been really inspiring for me. I remember the first time I saw you posted that you were like playing guitar and playing songs and stuff. And, yeah. and, you know, I thought like, Oh, he does that too. And like, I grew up doing that and, and that felt a little bit like permission. It was like, Oh, mm. I'm allowed to do that too. You know? That's cool. Uh, so, so can you talk a little bit about your various different influences <laughs> from, you know, being a person who has a DMA in jazz trumpet and writing big band music to, to doing songs and singer songwriter stuff to doing comics? I suppose when you put it all out there, it's a it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff, right? I think that the biggest thing is that I just I just get like really obsessed with stuff, you know. Mm. I just get completely sucked into whatever creative project is like tickling my fancy at, at any moment. And I do think that I'm a pretty fast like fast learner, mm. and I have a I have a pretty analytical kind of mind, uh, especially with regards to process. It's that kind of thing that some people see like a piece of art or hear a piece of music and just hear like, or see like, think to themselves, that's unattainable. I'm, I'm not saying this makes me special or anything like that, but I've never, because I think you're the same way. Like I've never heard anything or seen anything and been like, I could never do that. It's always like, you see it and you immediately know the process that, that went into it. Right. Uh, and it's, so it's a real exam, like a, like a lifelong examination of process combined with a real, like healthy, healthy obsession, uh, and then combined with 
um, a very strong sense of follow through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is kind that of part like is so important. I mean, the follow through part, because it's easy to get, I think it's easy to get overwhelmed if you know the process, if you understand how much work it's actually going to take right. to accomplish a thing. You know, I've, right. I've said this about students that are learning jazz before that, like, when you get to a certain level and you become sort of self-aware of what you don't know, yeah. Oh, yeah. then it opens up and you and it becomes much, much more of a daunting and then you be, and then you develop self doubt and you develop you know what I mean like yeah. become self conscious about your playing and you start comparing yourself to other people and right in some ways that's healthy in some ways it's not uh, but yeah, yeah that follow through part is such a huge piece yeah yeah and I think in an in an abstract sense I suppose I've always had like a very like I've never been someone who suffers from like imposter syndrome mm -hmm. even though sometimes I think at times. I was deluding myself with the level of the output that I was doing at any given time. Like my first comic graphic novel project or the comics I did in high school or like my first one, Let's Go to Utah, that came out in like 20, 2007 2000 mm. to 2009. I thought this was like pro level stuff and it really wasn't, but I just believed in it so much. At a certain point that can be that kind of that level of confidence can be like a detriment, but I think it has to be you have to kind of like combine it with like bouncing back and forth between like a bit of like an editor mindset and sort of that like unstoppable creative mindset where you're sort of like bouncing back and forth but not really letting the editor stop this from making stop the creator mindset from making progress but like yep. my, my philosophy has always been like finish the work and then learn from your mistakes for the next thing that you do instead of like constantly go back and constantly revise because at a certain point and you see this a lot with like young artists and I think like a lot of musicians too who like are great players but they never put in put anything out where they, they yep. it's where that like level of like preciousness about like releasing something is uh is it it feels like it's done under the under the guise of of editing but really it's done but really it's their ego protecting itself sure um yeah. and and so yeah like um and then you know like i suppose a more straightforward answer to your question would be like i had supportive parents hmm. who 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 uh i was in a household where like there was always music playing mtv was always on like i've said this before early my first word according to my mom was spider-man and the wow. earliest music i remember hearing in my life is like sketches of spain oh wow so it's like I was a, I was a very lucky kid. A lot of Mingus, a lot of Miles, Beatles. My dad, like all my dad's like record collection, pretty narrow, but like a pretty deep collection of like Mingus and Miles and like the Beatles and some Pink Floyd and stuff like that. And then mm. just a constant steady stream of MTV. And then just always comic books, always, always comic books. And then always like, if I was ever bored, it was like, here's a piece of paper. Here's a, some markers. Here's a pencil, like make something. You know, yep. so so I think like with that kind of like launch pad and then this really obsessive kind of bent in my like personality, it's just a it's a recipe for like doing a lot of stuff, just doing yeah. a lot of stuff, you know. And then in terms of the influences for that, you know, like my influences are the same as everybody else's. I think, you know, like like you, you listed all those current big band writers, current current ish, more more current, you know. Yeah, current ish uh, and, now, man. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and then, um, I mean, obviously, when you listen to like Evanescence, it still sounds current. You know, I mean, it's freaking yeah. incredible record. And then with singer songwriter stuff, it's like 
really learning like a lot of Elliot Smith songs. Mm. He's someone who songwriting I really, really admire. Um, and, mm. and then the usual kind of suspects like the Beatles and Stevie Wonder and Fiona Apple and Amy Mann. Fiona and- Apple, man. I've been listening to a bunch of Fiona Apple Good. So great. Like the yeah. new, her newer record, I don't know, it came out a year ago maybe. Yeah, or... Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Man. Yeah, that's it. That, so great. It's almost like, it's almost like um, unripoffable. You could never rip off that stuff because it's so iconic and it's so her. Yeah. You know, it's so like, and it's so personal. It's, that album is almost like, it's not an album that you, like I put on and like smile the whole time listening yeah. to it. It's like, holy shit. What a like, yep. it's like a jet engine of like, of like emotion. It's amazing. Yep. Yeah. It's super creative and there's all kinds of different instruments in it. I mean, I just really loved the whole landscape of that record. And yeah. I had, you know, I'd listened to her in like the whatever late nineties, early two thousands, whenever mm-hmm. she got, whenever she kind of blew up, but I didn't really understand the depth of her artistry until Man. this newer release, you know, I'll give you a homework assignment. Yeah. Uh, go learn criminal on piano okay and the chord progression in that song is unbelievably cool yeah like i'll tell you that it starts with an eight measure intro c minor and then the first song when she's the first chord when she starts singing is a minor Hmm. who does that that's not a pop like that's not a pop formula like c minor and then all of a sudden it's an a minor chord and it's like why what who no like and she wrote that when she was like what 18 right 17 18 years old and i'm just like that is a that is a level of problem solving that is a solution a path through that forest that yep. nobody nobody has taken before yeah and you know I'm i was a- going to say earlier i don't i don't know her level of like schooling or whatever with music but in some ways i feel like naivety can be a strength it can be something that it's like i i haven't been dictated that i need that i have to do these certain things or that this is how things are done it's like i'm exploring this from not a blank slate but like i'm exploring this from a more organic place yeah you know i mean I mean? you see that with uh, you see that sometimes and it's tricky you know because like we're we're both educators and it can be a challenge for us to like find that beginner's mind, I suppose. And you look at someone like Paul McCartney and he just lives there. He just lives mm-hmm. there. Cause he doesn't, yep. he, there's no, there's no like structure besides what he's kind of discovered over his like 80 some years as a human being, you know? Right. Right. Cause he doesn't I read music like, and stuff like that. Yeah. I feel like, uh, I was thinking of Brian Wilson too, you know, thinking about his, how his songs are sneakily complicated and you know it's like yeah. they sound to our ears they're, they're these pop songs and they sound i don't know that they sound simple but like they were they were pop music you know they were hugely yeah famous tunes and have this understructure that's so deep uh i think that's really yeah cool. it's cool stuff man for sure yeah so when did you start i, I mean i think part of maturing as an artist is going like i'm into this and i'm into this and i'm into this now how do I create a whole picture with all of that at once? And and I feel like you've done that with your new work. I mean, you had instrumental maybe. I don't know if that was the first time that you combined your, like you made a record that went along with that comic. Yeah. And I remember like reading and listening at the same time and then listening to the album by itself. And 
Um, now with your work with the Charlie Parker book and with Enter the Blue, where you've got partnerships with like Charlie Parker Foundation or family, Creep Adult, mm. Dual Jabbar doing the forward, you know, yeah. and and like uh, you know Blue Note Records being involved in this new thing. So you've really combined your passions of comics and music in a really visceral way, a way that's really become impactful. And I don't know that like if you had been approached by you know, if you'd been like, I want to do this Charlie Parker novel 10 years ago, like you no. maybe weren't even ready for that. Right. Like it's like, Oh no. Yeah. You had to make those early comics yeah. that, and like learn from those things before you could have taken on projects like this. You know, while I was working on my master's degree and my doctorate, I kind of had this like fantasy about making a, making this a graphic novel that had a soundtrack sort mm -hmm. of like this, like all encompassing work, right. Boundary breaking and everything. And so when I finished my doctorate, I just did it. I just kind of like luckily underemployed at the time, just doing some gigs and like do, working a very part-time kind of job. And it gave me the time to dive in. And then I pitched it around to publishers and like only one publisher expressed any interest and it was Z Z2 Comics. And they hadn't done any music related books before that. They sat on it for several years because they had some like ups and downs. I think the, they had like some so one of the like partners in the company like bailed and they almost it almost like sh closed up and everything so it uh -huh. took like it i pitched that to them in 2014 and it didn't come out until 2017 that was a an eternity wow. it was an eternity to sit on this completed fully mixed album like everything just like sit on it and just be like ah yeah. and during that time i kind of like for better or worse, I felt like frustrated with the with the jazz world and like the in the music ed world for, you know, for some kind of real reasons and some kind of like made up reasons, I suppose, in hindsight, you know. And so I started just uh, playing a lot of music with like singer songwriter stuff, which I hadn't done since the two like around 2007, like 2005 to 2007. So it's like always kind of bouncing back and forth. Uh, and I, I, I put a lot into this singer songwriter project and that project had an album that came out, um, mm. about a month after instrumental came out, just so happened that these two projects came out in 2017, a month apart, the, the singer songwriter album came out and I, and I'm still believing, I think it's a good album, mm. but nobody cared about it. It was like, just, it was just like, it was almost like aggressive, aggressively disinterested in this thing. Like it, I didn't, like we couldn't get any like press. We couldn't like nothing. It was just very frustrating. It was a different time than it is now. Like getting on a Spotify playlist was like there. There was no path to do that back then. Yeah. And and I and and no 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 excuses. I mean, it just people didn't. It just that's the way it goes sometimes, right? And then and then a month earlier, the instrumental came out, and it felt like everybody loved it. It mm. felt like oh man, there was so much positive press for that book. It was, I would say for like a debut graphic novel met with a lot of like love from the comics community and from my friends and, and from people who I didn't know, you know? And in that moment, I was like, I could be really pissed off right now because my more recent, more heartfelt project is like just a, just a. Yeah. Yeah. And then this other one that I did years ago is like this. And I was like, but hey, like, this is an opportunity. So in that point, I kind of was like, I have to put more creative. I had been doing like freelance comic work in those three years, just like off on and off for friends uh, and, and kind of collaborators and stuff like that. And in that moment, I was like, I have to start, I have to do another book. I have to put some, some, 
thought into it and I did a bunch of work and I did, I, I made another comic book that's not music related called Canopus. That's a sci-fi book. And then while I was just finishing that up, Z2, who since they did instrumental had totally pivoted to music related graphic novels, like 90% wow. of their books. Because of your well, honestly, release, you think? No, no. I think my release planted an, an idea, but the one that really did it was they did a book that was in collaboration with one of the members of the Black Keys. So it's a much oh. more marketable book, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and instrumental in that book came up came out a month apart. Hmm. Uh, my book came out in May of that year, and then the uh, it's called Murder Ballads came out in June of that year. Of course, that one sold a lot more than mine did. Mine was the first. I mean, it's but and it sort of like said made them think like this is a real angle that nobody's dealing with. And so yep. they um, did a lot of wheeling and dealing. They did like a book with Sturgill Simpson, who is a, like a country kind of old school country guy who I really like. Mm. And then they like have deals with these various management teams and music entities. And one of them is the management team, the estate management team that manages the Charlie Parker estate. And wow. they got like a deal for that book. And then they were like, we know just the guy to do it. And they contacted me. So I hadn't really been in touch wow. with them in a few years. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's do this. And, um, I knew how big of an opportunity it was. So that was, yeah, here's the book chasing the bird. Chasing this was, the bird. and it has a, like you said, it has a forward by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which is a really beautiful, uh, was really awesome. Yeah. So did and, they work out the forward from Kareem? Like I knew that he was a jazz lover from watching like interviews with Magic Johnson talking yeah. about him playing jazz in the locker rooms and I, honestly I don't know how that who wrangled it I think okay. I I feel like it was people at the publisher but at least for that book I was pretty separate from dealing with I just like was the creative stuff and it was like it's a gig you know it's like it was mm -hmm. a work for hire kind of gig I get a little royalty from it and it paid well and then when they were contacted Z2 has a contract with like the bigger music entity that Blue Note is part of. Okay. Um, and when they were kind of like scanning that, all of these various outlets for like possible graphic novel options, they were like, what about Blue Note? And then this book, uh, my new book, Enter the Blue came to be. And the story behind this one is really interesting because I thought they wanted a nonfiction book. And so I was in the pitch meeting on Zoom like this and yeah. I'm given my pitch for this really cool like kind of coffee table book that's like also a graphic novel about the history of Blue Note Records. Mm -hmm. And I could see everyone's face just kind of like mm, bored. Not yeah. Really and I was like, oh, no. I was, and I got to the end of my pitch and I was like, you guys don't, didn't, this isn't what you guys want, is it? And they were like, we were kind of hoping you'd do something like a work of fiction. Yeah. And another guy was like, yeah, put time travel in it or something cool like that. In that moment, it was um, honestly really exciting. Cause I was that like, is such a cool, I mean, I love that, that you're, you had some people to bounce things off of. You could read the room. It's like so much of creativity happens in a bubble and we don't get to get that real time feedback when we're coming up with ideas and what you came yeah. up with for enter the blue is so beautiful. I mean, Thanks, I really man. loved it. And I really loved the Charlie Parker book too. I would love to talk a little bit about the storytelling aspect of writing a graphic novel. Cause sure. it feels to me like, and, I, and one of your reviews uh, says this, somebody, uh, I don't remember who said it, but it's like for people who love jazz and for people who have no idea anything about jazz, it's like, a, it's just a beautiful story. Uh, Thanks, man. Can you talk about 
that like the storytelling process of of maybe specifically enter the blue yeah sure um well you know i can just i think the story just picks off picks up right where picks up right where i left off right so basically like i get off that call i kind of in that call i kind of like played a little bit of jazz myself you know and i riffed on Mm -hmm. like i said well we want something that speaks to the history of jazz but also the future of jazz so we probably need a teacher and a student as the main characters and there needs to be a mystery so maybe the teacher goes missing or something like that and the yep, student yep. has to like explore to find this teacher and i was like give me a couple weeks to figure it out i'll tell you adam i'm i for someone who went to like 10 years of college and got good grades i don't think i was like a particularly good student in the sense of like i i don't think i've ever had like a really this i i hope, I hope none of my old teachers hear this and are offended mm-hmm. you know but I, I don't think I've had a really great like teacher student relationship, mentor mentee kind of relationship as a student. I think that um and I think that some of my teachers recognize this and just work with me. Is that because of your aversion to experts? Your aversion I saw your little thing on, on <laughs> yeah, TikTok. Absolutely, man. And like yeah. I said on that TikTok, it's 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 a for better or worse kind of aversion, you know. I I I think I have always been a pretty combative student. I'm like that and was that annoying student that is always like trying to like poke holes and whatever. If a teacher's like, you can't play a flat six over a Dorian sound, I'm gonna be like, Yes, I can. <laughs> you know, like uh or whatever. Like and so I I knew that the framework of this was gonna be a teacher and a student. So thankfully my wife is um, also a musician. She's a, an amazing cello player, hmm. went to Eastman, ma- bachelor's and master's degree at Eastman. I'm lucky. She's also like the, uh, the best editor that I could possibly hope for. Um, like she's, she's an expert at like poking holes in like a story. Like this is, this is bullshit. That's this, this is not authentic. That's not this is not what a character, how this character would react and stuff like that. Like yeah, really cool. deep, really deep stuff. And, and she all, and she has a really great relationship with her old teachers from Eastman. Who's a, it's a married couple, right? Hmm. Uh, Steve Doan and, and Rosemary Elliott are, hmm. are both cello teachers at Eastman and they're a married couple. And we see them like pretty frequently. They're like friends of ours. Right. Wow. Even though Elise graduated like 10 years ago or something like that, or like, sure. Yeah, like 10, I think 11 years ago where she's still in touch with them. And I was like, man, so we, so I really modeled a lot of that relationship between this, like the main character, Jesse and the teachers on Elise's relationship with her old teacher. Cool. And the kind of support that she's gotten and everything like that. Uh, And, and then, and then for this one, it was like, I suppose in terms of just process, it's kind of like. I suppose the way I think about this stuff is I start with a, I start with like a, a theme or like an idea and you know the, what the theme is in this book. Like it's the, the let Thelonious Monk quote, right? That's the theme of the book. Yep. Uh, for the Charlie Parker book, it's the theme is really that like, it, is that it, it's rooted in that like fable from the opening of the book with the elephant and the blind men. Right. And then you, you let that theme like inform as much as you can. It's obviously mm-hmm. different with a nonfiction book, right? Especially a nonfiction book that's really a really sh- short span of time. But for the Blue Notebook, it was like I knew that there was going to be this like metaphysical aspect of the Blue. I knew that there was going to be a conspiracy with the Blue Note album covers because I had to tie Blue Note stuff in somehow. 
And I yeah. wanted it to kind of be this like very fun, wacky kind of like conspiracy theory about the history of Blue Note. I love and, that character too. I think that character is great. Just like the super hopelessly nerdy jazz fan who's yeah. got a little apartment and it's just like wrecked with recordings and stuff up on the wall documenting his big conspiracy yeah. his piano tie i texted you about the piano tie yeah. and that made me laugh yeah yeah and he's based on a, a friend of mine named sherm he's based on a real guy oh, wow. uh, and i and i emailed sherm he's sherm is is um he's a bit older he's like my parents age and i emailed him and i was like hey sherm is it okay if i base a character on my next graphic novel on you fair warning he, it's not the most flattering version of you it's going to be a pretty like exaggerated and he was like totally man sure yeah that's awesome um, and he's someone who lives in salt lake city which is like basically where i'm from and he uh and he has recorded like live music in salt lake city since the 60s wow and he has like like hours and hours like days of recordings of like music that nobody else in the world has a he's the only person that has like probably like recordings of like Jimi Hendrix playing at like the University of Utah, you know, or wow. like recordings of like back when jazz musicians used to tour a little bit more, like every single, like, like, especially like underground, especially free jazz, especially outside, like left of center stuff. Yep. There's a great, uh, Nels Klein performance that was done in like this old garage that I was at the performance sitting on the floor. And it was like one of the best performances I've ever seen. And I have I have a rec I have a recording from Sherm of that of that gig, and it's like this is a very precious special thing. So anyway, uh, so yeah, and and so I knew I had all these elements. I knew that uh, the main character was going to be like facing um, her anxieties about performing. Yeah, uh, I can really I mean all that stuff I was really I, mean, I could really identify with those. She sees here's Spain, and I don't sound like that. That's not, not he, he's so good. I can't sound like you know all right. the self doubt and the the second guessing and yeah. I never quit, but I mean it's yeah. like it's hard yeah. not to compare yourself to other people. It's a losing battle. Yeah, there's like a legend of a student at Eastman who, when he finished his the, his recital, his senior recital, his undergrad student, he sold his trumpet to the highest bidder in the audience, and he like just quit in that moment. Wow. Yeah. That, pretty, that actually happened? I, I mean, my friend Aaron <laughs> says it happened. And, you know, so there's like a 50-50 chance that it happened, I think. It's a legend, yeah. Okay. It's, a, it's a legend, you know. But um, shoot, man. Like, a lot of people, like, even I look at my own my own career. Like, I'm, I, I still am a trumpet player. I mean, I have my horn, like, literally, like, right here, you know. Yeah. Um, but, like the the all the comic work and the teaching work has allowed me to like take the most cautious route through the covid epidemic and just like say i'm not performing for this and i haven't played a gig i've played like two gigs in like two years wow and um and it kind of sucks that i i really miss it but it and i and i could even say like i'm one of those people that like i, I got my doctorate and then i quit but it's like that's not really exactly what happened it's and, you know, you kind of have to follow opportunity as it shows up and everything like that. Yeah. And of course, you're still using all the things that you learned right. in the work that you're doing. I mean, there's like so much information that like when I'm reading Enter the Blue, like it, I'm almost tearing up talking about it because it was like I could really identify with the character. And it felt like, man, 
nobody else could have written this book. Somebody who who has to have experienced some of this stuff has to have had mm. written this book, right? It couldn't have been somebody from outside who didn't go through a whole bunch of schooling to learn about jazz and then try to grind it out gigging and travel around and try to make records, try to get yeah. people to listen to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a... Well, I appreciate that first off, you know. Um, and I think that obviously in the with the small confines of this much space, like there are some like aspects like would they be able to get a regular residency at a venue in one day? No, that would never happen in a big city. And we're assuming they're in New York City. Uh, would she be able to afford to live in a one bedroom apartment by herself in New York City on a on like a teacher teacher salary and yeah. teacher salary? Oh. Maybe it's a private school that she's teaching at. Maybe it's a, not a public school and it's like a little bit more posh. Maybe she has a wealthy family. I mean, like, let's be real. There's a lot of people who are playing music in New York city who yep. are like, I did have that thought floating, you know, we don't really, we don't really get much of her backstory besides her backstory as a performer either way, but either way, like, um, I appreciate that, you know, and, and I, and I will say that like this book is a little bit of a reaction I think all of these books that I'm making are a bit of a reaction against jazz related media that like jazz movies and uh, other graphic, other comic books. Cause they are out there that like really try to get it right sometimes, but really don't, but still yep. miss a lot of it and yep. show a real lack of like curiosity about how the music changes you and yeah. the actual, yeah. like the actual, like, um, process of like learning how to do this and the history yep. in the history behind it it's almost all like surface level mystique about yeah, it totally. and sort of like Dude, whip, this i mean whiplash my brother my brother's not a musician i remember he called me he's like man i loved whiplash it was so yeah. awesome and I was like, dude, I had to turn it off. Like, I couldn't even watch it. They were yeah. using the it was like simple shit, like the wrong terminology, calling lead tenor first chair. You know what I mean? It's like, well, we say first chair in band. We don't do that in jet. You know, it's like simple things that right. they could have gotten right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I didn't want to na say mention anything by name, but you went ahead and went, sorry. Went, no, it's fine, man. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I. I saw I saw that movie in the theater and I was on one hand I can recognize why it's such an effective movie it's a sport it's a sport movie right it's a it's a, movie. it's a sport movie that's yep. instead of a punching bag it's a drum set you know what I mean yep. like and there are occasionally some educators that can be I mean there are educators who can be abusive you know what I mean uh, but I think that the real missed opportunity is sort of like the camaraderie not just the competition like jazz music it's sort of like all of these so many pieces of jazz media just get so caught up on like the competitive aspect of it. And I'm just like, look, I, I love this quote from like Shirley Chisholm, the politician from back in the day. She said like, everyone's path is different. Water, water, boiling water softens a potato, but it hardens an egg. Right. Ah. And sort of like for some students, that competitive aspect is good. It helps motivate them and then they need it. And for other students, like, it's it's just crushing yeah it's terrible yeah. it's bad for them as an artist it's bad for them in every way it's bad for their mental health it's yep. terrible and like as a teacher like it, we can't have it's not one size fits all you have to you have to look at a student and say this student does, is not going to thrive and if we focus on the competitive aspect and yep. 
and like and 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 all these pieces of media or so many of them are missing the hang the the the, the cooperative aspect the hang the like listening to records the like endless like like deep listening and talking about it with your friends and going to hear music with your friends, like, and the healing aspect of it as well. It's not just like tortured artist stuff watching like bird, the movie bird. It's like, you would think that playing music was like absolute torture for Charlie Parker when it's, when it's like, man, like music was an escape. It's very clear. Like that music was an escape for this guy who, who was carrying like the weight of the world on his shoulders and didn't have the tools to deal with that. Yep. You know? Yep. And so he just, everything was like a way to escape his own, like the, the cyclone of his own mind. Yeah. And so like, yeah, I mean, so every time I, I, every time like I, I, I were like, I think there's a little bit of like trepidation um, with my publisher about these jazz books, right? Because it's like, how do we market jazz books? Cause nobody listens to jazz music. It's 2022. Like it's what point, whatever percent of the market of like, but people who buy music or whatever. Yep. But like these books aren't like there's, there's so much more than, than that. They're there for, so anytime I have people who, who, uh, who, who, who let me know, like, you know, this book made me listen to a bunch of Charlie Parker or like, you know, I, this helped me appreciate jazz music more that like is the best, you know, my goals with yep. these books are like to get a uh, comic book, graphic novel, curious people to check out some jazz music. And then also to get some of these music and jazz curious people to check out a graphic novel. That's like really yeah. well, it's really well made and uh, has some like really cool formal decision-making and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely find myself thriving in competitive environments to go back to what you're saying about working with students. And mm-hmm. I've had to really, I've taught private lessons for a long time early in my career as like a side thing and then slowly worked my way into academia. And, you know, I've really had to go, like, like you said, each student needs something different. And I remember my teacher really, really crushing my ego in, in college. Um, mm. And, and then talking to other students and being like, he's not like that with me at all, you know? So right. it was like, he was playing that game too, going like, Adam is somebody who needs to have his ego crushed needs to be brought back down to earth so that he'll work harder, you know? And, uh, and it was like, it's the opposite for some other students. I think that's mm-hmm. a, that's a, that's a landscape we got to navigate as educators. Yeah, uh, no doubt. And I love, I mean, I just loved the, I loved the Charlie Parker book. I loved learn, you know, I learned some things about his time in California. I know I like part of what I love about jazz music and part of what drew me to the music was, listening and reading liner notes and hearing the stories about yeah you know, pawning of a, a train ticket and getting stuck in LA or whatever like, right. you know like that that part of the stories behind the music is what really attracted me and so I love teaching history of jazz here at Michigan Tech that's cool uh, because I can tell these stories and kind of try to bring people in with the story right. it feels like that's what you're doing with the comics it's like you're bringing people in with the story and then they go maybe I should check out some of this music like what was this about um yeah you know, and that lore of like jam sessions until 5 a.m. at Mittens Playhouse in 1938-39 during a recording strike, right? So none of that, a lot of those formative years of bebop weren't recorded. I mean, it's like such a cool era uh, to explore now. And that's, for me as a listener, came much later. Like I wasn't into, 
I, I don't know if I couldn't understand it probably is part of it, but I, I couldn't get into bebop until more recent years. And I started more recently learning some Charlie Parker tunes, mm. more tunes and more transcriptions, just trying to transcribing, listening, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And your book helped with that. I mean, honestly, like when you, when I read your book, I was like, I started listening to more bird, man. I like started turning on these old, these great recordings with him and like a Django style guitarist. And it's like, killing i was like man i gotta transcribe this you know cherokee solo or whatever yeah i think i i think i had a similar relationship with bebop uh that that you had um you know with the exception of like i think i think that um a lot of like mingus's stuff is sort of this nice marriage between uh duke ellington and charlie parker uh, a lot of his like compositional vocabulary with like just a healthy dose of dose of himself. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so like, there is still a, a lot of familiarity. Like I, since I grew up listening to so much, uh, Mingus, there's a, there's still a lot of familiarity when I listen to Charlie Parker with like, mm. it, 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 it feels like it's from that same, that same spot. Um, but yeah, like in, in, with this project, it, it really, um, I knew a lot of the stories, but it really forced me to like, re- like re-examine all of it and do a bit more of like a deep dive into Charlie Parker, Parker's music and everything like that. Um, so could you, could you talk a little bit about being a white dude telling <laughs> stories about black music and yeah, you know, these are like historically black stories and yeah, I think they're important and they're beautiful and I, I love reading them and, and be like, that must is was is there any kind of tension there? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember it was like uh, two two months, or no, maybe like f- five months into making the making the Charlie Parker book. Um, all the George Floyd riots, like protests, riots is not the right word. Protests were happening, yeah. Yeah. and then there was uh there were protests right in right here in Rochester with um oh Daniel Prue uh when he was um murdered by the police here mm. bl- uh, black a black man here and uh and so it was really in the forefront of like my head like is this um I want to like do do like do get this right yeah. you know there's like a lot of pressure uh, which was, which is good. Like, that's a good, it's a good thing. It's not like, I'm not saying that like, woe is me for, cause there's so much pressure on me. No, it's like, it was like, this is how it's, a, it's, it should be. Right. Yeah. I mean, and especially, and like for that book, it's a, it's a, it's like sort of like nonfiction. It's like, it's like in that space of like historical fiction, nonfiction, there's obviously a lot of like poetic license taken on the, taken with the book. Uh, for that book, I had I had a couple like three different people at uh, as like sensitivity readers. Yep, yep. <coughs> um, they're listed in the back. One is a Rochester-based musician, or I think she's until recently named Avis Reese. If mm-hmm. you're familiar with Danielle Ponder, who's like blowing up right now in the, the music world, I'm uh, not. This, I gotta check that. She's this incredible, uh, like singer, songwriter, um, who's, who is an ex like public defendant 
she's like a lawyer from Rochester and she's like, like she's opening for like Marcus Mumford right now, like on tour wow. and Avis, who was the, one of the people, one of the, um, people that were kind enough to read through the Charlie Parker script. Uh, she was, she's the music director for Daniel's band, which okay. is kind of wild. And then, uh, Chris Johnson, the trumpet player from, uh, from Detroit, yeah, Chris was on the show. Uh, yeah, handful of weeks ago. Yeah. He, I, I love that let that dude. And then um, yeah, he's my, awesome. And then a, a good friend of mine, uh, who who uh, tragically passed away uh, from COVID. Uh, I oh, man. named named um, Isaiah Smith, um, who's a who's this like who was this absolutely brilliant piano player from Salt Lake City. Uh, and he, and he went really above and beyond. Uh, we had like several very long conversations about the script of this book. Hmm. And so I, I really owe a lot to him and it really bums me out that he, um, he never actually got to see the final book printed. It's kind of hmm. a, it's kind of like, it's, it's just super sad. Like, um, so yeah, like, uh, that, I mean, that's part of the process. And then it's sort of like with it, with a nonfiction story, it's like, just, just the things that need you, like, you can't, like, I think it would be, a, um, um, a, mi uh, a misstep to not talk about like race in a, in a piece of media about jazz music. Yep. Um, how could you not? I mean, like I get feedback from my jazz history students all the time. They're like, stop being so political. And I'm like, I'm not being political. I'm just telling you the, what happened. I, this is. <laughs> presenting the facts of yeah. history man yeah and 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 with the charlie parker book um you know th there there weren't a lot of jazz musicians back then who were really outspoken about race in like pub like publicly um yeah. and so there was a little bit of like sort of putting myself in that spot and sort of like i i, I probably did use a lot of contemporary language in that book uh in, in, in some of those scenes, but, and, and, and I knew that that scene, like it, I mean, it comes up throughout like a thread throughout the book, but there's the one scene in particular where he's talking to William Claxton, who's like a mm -hmm. photographer and they have this conversation and it's really kind of like from William's point of view. And he's this sort of young, naive, like white guy who just happens to have Charlie Parker over at his parents' house for the weekend. Mm -hmm. And, um, it felt like a good spot to like have that conversation there because in a lot of ways, like, um, you know, like, uh, I can speak from like that naive white guy point of view a lot. It's a lot more like, like I've had conversations like that with friends of mine over yep. the, over my life in my life. Uh, and then as far as like with enter the blue, you know, I think it's just it. This is a work of fiction with a few historical figures who show up. Yeah. And with this one, it's kind of like just being mat like matter of fact. Like it's not a. It's like like this is Black American music. Like so so the characters, like all like it comes up again and again. Like Sherm says it, and yeah. uh, and I think I think like it comes up in in those conversations and then and, and then like at one point 
it comes up a bit more overtly in one of the kind of like her journeys into this metaphysical realm uh, where she meets a, like a historical jazz musician who, who is someone who did like struggle with um, like drug abuse and uh, you know, lot, like lots of problems in her life. Um, yep. And thinking about like what this music would, would mean to that, to that, to someone who's like, who struggled with like racism and, and all of these, and, and then all of these cascading problems as a result of that one thing, really, like when you look yeah. at, uh, it's really like a cascading, a bunch of problems that really or originate with like systemic and over like racism that this person, she was directly targeted by the FBI, like by the gov federal government. Right? The, yeah. Like, and also she like, to Billy, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. And she's someone who also like witnessed lynchings in her life. Yeah. You know, like the most, most like awful, awful thing that you could ever experience, you know? Yeah. And so, um, thinking about what this, what the music would mean, what this music would mean to someone who's been through so much. Like, I think that that, that person would be kind of like put off by someone who's just kind of venturing into this sacred space willy nilly, like without really recognizing the, um, this like, the dark part of this history yeah. and, and, and kind of acknowledging that without kind of running into the risk of making it, making like framing like every experience in black American history as like only pain. That's right. the other error. So like, it's sort of like walking this line between like, 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 um, ignore, like you don't want to, you can't ignore it. You can't like, you have to acknowledge it, but like, it just, it just feels like, like we don't need enough, like, does the world need another like movie about slavery? Does the world need another piece of media about, um, how, how much racism sucks, how stupid it is and how shitty it is and stuff like yeah. that. Like, um, by depicting it, you know, is, is that, is that what we need? Or do we need like paths forward that are like, this is a better way. This is a, this is a better way. And so, um, finding a way to acknowledge that without having, having, having to depict it, finding ways to, yeah. So, I mean, uh, I'm totally, I'm always open. I'm always open for feedback. I got some, I did get some, um, negative, um, press for ch the Charlie Parker book because of, because, um, of, because I'm, I'm a white guy telling a story of a famous, of like a historic black American. And I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I get a little bit of, um, kind of blowback for the, uh, chase in the blue or ent enter the blue. And, you know, and that's okay. If that happens, that's all right. I'm, I'm totally, uh, I, I, I'm, there's always room for me to be a better person too. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really sober take on that. Um, I've, uh, and just, I've, I've delighted the mood a little bit. I've started, I've started saying, I just did a whole bunch of auditions with my students. I said, Hey man, let's enter the blue. Let's go. Let's go. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I love I started, it, dude. I've started using that now. Uh, it just came out and I went, Oh, they have no idea what I'm talking about. But, uh, but that's amazing. Sure maybe the, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it. You're, 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 uh, that that that's amazing, man. That makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, cool. I I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your TikTok stuff because I love what you're doing there, and you're building a pretty substantial following. Uh, 
do you have some kind of formula you're trying to stick to? Are you are you experimenting with different formats? It seems on there. Well, uh, the the first thing is I just I, I try to not chase trends. I just try to be myself. I try to mm-hmm. just post stuff that I like that I like. And sometimes it go sometimes it meets does well, and more more often it doesn't. You know, uh, and I've had a few videos do really well that have built this following. Um, I, but I will say that like, there is a formula that, that if anyone's interested in like kind of in keeping, uh, building social media numbers, there's a formula and it, it's really easy to remember. It's, it's the four E's. Have you heard this before? Four, I don't think I have. I'm going to write it down. I'm okay. ready. So the first E is, um, educate. Maybe the, these aren't in order, by the way, maybe educate should be the last one, but We'll okay. put educate. We'll just say educate, and this is basically where you take what your the something that you know that you think would be helpful for people, and and you speak you right away you speak to their need of it. So like, um, here's like uh, five ways to make your jazz improvisation not suck right whatever thing i mean and you try to distill it down boil it down to its most basic thing educate uh the second one is uh is engage right and this is like uh what's your like what's your favorite like um like jazz solo on like a non-jazz song i'll go Mm -hmm. first I love Phil Wood solo on this Billy Joel song, whatever, right? Yep, yep, yep. Or like Herbie Hancock on like some Stevie track or something like that. Or like, what's your favorite musical cameo that's unexpected? You know. Um, yep. And you engage. You ask people to contribute. Uh, this is hard to do until you've already built a little bit of a platform, but. And then the third one is emotion. Hmm. Right. This is where you say, you tell a little bit of like, you be get vulnerable in front of the, in front of the thing. So I'll say like, you know, when I was, when I was like a 12 year old kid, all I wanted to do was like play trumpet, play jazz music and draw comic books. And I never like lost track of that. And like, you know, now I'm doing this work that's so meaningful to me. And like, I want to share it with you. And, and you want to make it so that by the end of the video, people are like touched by your story or by a story, you know? Yep. Um, and the last one is just entertainment, mm. right? And this is where you, uh, as musicians, there's like really a couple different ways you can entertain. Uh, you can, one thing that I've seen a lot of musicians do on TikTok and this is a this is like an area that someone who's really good needs to needs to take over because it's just people who aren't very good where they're mm. like what would a trumpet solo sound like on this Rihanna song and then they yes. record and it's like honestly I I I feel bad if this dude is listening to your podcast or watching the video <laughs> because he I hope they are cuz he that is the this guy he has like a lot of followers and I'm like that dude needs to needs to work on his vocabulary He's got like a lot of homework to do. Yeah, I've seen uh, maybe the person you're talking about. There's there are a few people that I've yeah. seen that do exactly that, and that's all they do like, every video. Yeah, and so uh, like uh, you know like if uh, or or something like like kind of the like 
I call it stunt music, you know, mm. like if you're good enough at your instrument that you can do something that like the lay person will find impressive. Like for me, I, I can circular breathe and just play eighth notes for like ever. Right. Yep, yep. And so I should probably make a video where I do a three, a three minute or like a 10 minute TikTok where I just play eighth notes for like 10 minutes on like Cherokee or something like that. Yep. And, um, and trombone shorty does that, man. He, he does that on a uh, sunny side of the street. He'll just hold a D and then yeah. he'll fall over at the end. Like, Oh, and the crowd yeah. will go wild, man. It's like, and, and of course, trombone shorty can back up all of that with everything, but sure. Yeah. And it's the same thing with art, right? Uh, and the, the, the tricky thing about that is that like, for me with, with visual art, I, I, I have to be very careful to not really become like a performance artist. I want to like make, make books. I'm not a yeah. performance artist. I'll do whiteboard drawings that are time lapses that are really fun Those once cool, in a while. Yeah. But like, I don't want to be like, uh, like I, I like for my art, visual art to be something that is solitude. that's personal. It's quiet for me. And as soon as I turn a camera on, it changes the decisions I'm making. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. It's and inherent. it yeah. reminds me of that anecdote about young Wynton Marsalis doing his circular breathing thing and getting big applause and his dad saying, you know, if, 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 um, if what you're playing for is applause, that's all you're going to get. Mm. And that is stuff. There's that, an Art Blakey quote too, uh, with Wynton where, Apparently, I've heard this story. I don't know where I heard this, but that he's playing with Blakey and, you know, Blakey calls him over after one of his solos and he goes, why is a dog lick his ass? And Winton goes, because like, he, he can. And that was it. <laughs> same, same lesson, I think, right? Yeah, right, right. And so, um, and so like, you know, I, I think that um, for for anybody listening or any like younger artists or musicians like be really be really aware of like why you're doing the stuff you're doing um and try to treat the social media stuff as like a side fun thing that you do and not as the thing that you do mm -hmm. um because as soon as you become like a stunt musician or a stunt artist or like a that or like an like a tiktok performing artist first off tiktok doesn't pay well tiktok is like a is not a sustainable platform for earning money as an artist yep. um, in the way that YouTube can be mm -hmm. um, the way that TikTok's creator fund works is it's a, it's a fixed amount of money that they divide up amongst people who are in the creator fund, which means the bigger the platform gets, the less each person in the creator fund gets per view. It's really stupid. Interesting. It's, and they're not increasing that creator fund as not. more people are creating. At last I heard they, they're not. So like really we should all be using, if we want to talk, like I know you talk marketing and all that stuff on your podcast quite a bit. If we want to talk about that, like all of our TikTok accounts should be funnels to somewhere else. Right. And TikTok right. has recently started noticing that people are using it that way. And basically now if, if they catch, if the algorithm catches the words link in bio, it will shut your video down and delete it. Wow. Um, so like, you know, it's this constant like thing where like you want your, you want your media to reach people. You want to build a, build an audience that you can like, it's gross to put it this way in such a capitalist way, but that you want to like monetize, you want to like be able to get like 10 bucks from your, um, like 10,000 people like every year, right. Yeah, or a hundred dollars yeah. from your, a thousand people every year. Yep. Um, 
And so, uh, like TikTok is not, is not a way to do that, but it's a way to like, it's, but it's definitely the way that I found it's the best platform for building an audience of new people, like for sure. sure. Yeah. I've heard of a lot of people where if their song becomes part of a trend or their song blows up, then it'll, their numbers will increase significantly on Spotify to the tune of sometimes millions of, of listens, which can pay a significant amount of money. So there's some right. avenues like that, but I'm, but yeah, that's and, still, and of course, people are, yeah, that's still that funnel effect, right? Where you're, where it, totally the, the money they're making from TikTok itself is probably like $20 for like however yep. millions of people yep. using their sound and stuff like that. So Instagram is paying people to make reels now too. a friend of mine who has a really popular account. She just got a message saying like, all right, if you reach these certain numbers, you'll get this amount. And so it's like, make more reels and you'll, you'll make money. Right. Um, and it seems a little more significant than what you're saying with, uh, the way TikTok I'm, pays creators. It probably is, but also like Instagram is owned by meta owned by Facebook. And boy, I, I look at some of the, um, stats on their, on reels and stuff. And I'm like, this is, th these aren't real. This is not real engagement, you know, yeah. like yeah. there's no way a reel should have like 50,000 views and three comments. That's not real right. engagement. That's, those are fake. Those are, to me, those numbers feel juiced. We should all be very suspicious of the, the, the statistics that we get from that company because they've, they've butched, they've, um, they've fudged them before for Mark to build their market share to, to yep. make their shareholders happy. So it's like, it's so gross and stupid, man. It's all gross and stupid. I just wish I could just make art and get it in front of people. That's what we, I mean, that's what we all want to do. Yeah. And that's the hard thing is that like you do at some point, it's like you have to grapple with getting paid. You have to grapple with survival. And it's like, that's why I started wanting to learn more about this stuff with yeah. this podcast is like, how do I get to a place where my art can at least be a substantial amount of income on a monthly basis so that I can continue to create right. the art that I want to, you know, and it's like, and where's the intersection between the sorts of things that I want to make and the sorts of things that people want to see in here? Where's that intersection so that I am being true to myself, but also I'm serving a population or I'm entertaining or I'm whatever. I mean, it's like, there is that aspect to art making and uh, a lot of jazz musicians like to turn their nose up to that. But dude, Miles put on a show, man. Like, these guys, you, a lot of these guys were comedians on the microphone, you know? It's, it's like they put on shows in really thoughtful ways. Right. And uh, and now we read we're, tunes from real books. We're lazy about talking to the audience about what we're doing. We're, yeah, you know, yeah. a lot of things. I mean, like, on one hand, like, um, culture, like, hum like, human culture, all of these cultures, like, like they're all toxic and horrible, right? Like, on, on one hand, like, I know that that's probably a, a, a very privileged thing to say is like someone who's just like a straight white guy who mm -hmm. I, who basically comes from no culture right because like what is white american mm -hmm. straight guy culture like what is it beer like it's beer i don't even drink i don't drink adam i don't even I'm, i haven't either in weeks and weeks <laughs> i'm trying to trying to quit altogether. that's yeah. cool and so yeah. um and so like it's easy for me to say that but but then but then at the same time as as artists like you have to participate in culture, you know? And I think that I do think with jazz music in particular, um, like 
as a monolith, you know, which is always a, always a ter- always a great way to talk about a thing is like one thing, right? But mm. that aside, if we like think about jazz music as a monolith from every level, so like gig saxophone guy who lives in, you know, uh, Boise, Idaho, um, all the way up to like like Joshua Redman or Chris yeah. Potter or whoever, uh, like it's a it's it feels like um, a, there is a reluctance to participate in culture, you know, uh, and to sort of like like think about those four E's, those four E's when they're performing or when they're engaging with people, like um, like uh, and then and then really meeting people where they are in a lot of ways. I don't and I don't know what that is. I mean, is it like the Bad Plus doing like a Nirvana song like twenty years ago or whatever? Like yep. a little bit, yeah. Is mm-hmm. um is it like uh Matt? Oh, what's his name? The drummer Matt Wilson. Matt Wilson, yeah. Like being like kind of a funny guy on stage. Like Dave King's like that too. I mean, just like yeah, comedian. Is it like uh, Nicholas Payton like? um like being really uh outspoken about race and 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 all this stuff online yeah yeah like it's it's a good thing it's a good thing mm-hmm. um because he's engaging with culture right yep uh and like and then it's kind of like i think it also is is the music too you know like i can't tell you how many times i've this, I'm gonna sound like an old get off my lawn guy right now, but I can't tell you how many times I've put on like the hot new thing of like jazz music, and it's like there's literally nothing I can remember on it. There's literally nothing on it that like I can sing along to. I can remember. It's like um, I'm thinking of the new. I really like them a lot. The new Domi and JD Beck record. Did you listen to that? I I didn't. Yeah, that that's how I listen. I've listened to it a couple times through. I can't, I can't think of a, a thing to sing right now. That's yeah. all. I mean, there's like a lot of cool collaborations. I enjoyed the record. We were listening to it when we were on tour with my trio, and we all were like, "There's only so much of this I can listen to before I got to turn it off." Yeah. You know? Whereas, yeah. like, a Love Supreme is like I can listen to over and over and over and over again and hear something new every time. It was, well, and it's a not even approach, but and it's not even about hearing something new. It's it's also about like a connection to familiarity to people's ears, you know, like, um, like, uh, really like letting there be repetition in the music, Mm -hmm. you know, like, like really kind of like, like connecting to the dance roots of jazz music, you know, like there's nothing wrong with like, doing something that makes people like tap their foot or like shake their shake their butt or whatever yeah melody Um, too i mean like yeah and that's the and for me that's the thing right for me like for for dave like i just like i don't understand like it's it's not just melody but it's also harmony for that matter like i remember here's a here's an anecdote when i was at when i was at eastman i was doing this arrangement of alone together and it was i i did that arrangement uh during it 
during in my first semester there when Bill Dobbins was on sabbatical. Bill Dobbins is like kind of a terrifying teacher to have. He's the guy that everybody's afraid of. He's the guy that knows the most. And he's also the guy that likes the least, right? That he's, mm. he's not like, he's not really open to new, to new stuff, right? Unless it fits a pretty narrow criteria. And he's earned the right to have that narrow criteria. This is not like intended to say like his way is bad or whatever, but like yep. I did this arrangement of alone together. And at one point it repeats the same, uh, like, little chord progression like five times in a row or something like that and he when i showed him the score and the recording when he was back he was like that's too many times to repeat that and i was like like um uh you know, I, I guess I don't remember the point of that. So I had a, a real clear point when I started it. I'm sorry. Well, I was talking about uh, hearing something new every time I listened to a yeah. Love Supreme, you know, and you were like, it's not necessarily about hearing something new every time. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's about like, like, um, it's not, it's about hearing something that's like, that's familiar too. You know, it's about hearing something like, oh, okay. So when I, yeah, that's what it was. It was harmony, right? So, so, and, and he's like, I wouldn't use the same chords every time. And it's like, and he had this real aversion to like using the same chord, like more than a couple times. Mm -hmm. And I was just like thinking to myself at the same time, us like schooled musicians love conciseness with like melodic content. We love conciseness with like rhythmic development. Like we want there to be a certain like Beethoven-esque, like, like boiling everything down to like one motive that we then develop over all, all this stuff. And yep. yet in jazz music, we, we, we hate conciseness with regards to harmony. We want a constant steady stream of new shit in harmony. Right. And I think this is, and to, for my ears, again, like it took me a long time to realize that my ears with regards to harmony, my taste is not sophisticated. Like I love mm. triads. I love like simple chords. I love diatonic chord progressions. I don't, yeah. I don't have a problem with that. Like, and I want it, I want there to be, if there's going to be a chromatic note in it for it to be like powerful, you know, mm. um, if you listen to my record calligraphy, you'll hear it on that. It's like, there's not a lot of crunchy harmony on it at all. It's like very white key kind of stuff, you know? And, yeah. um, and like, I think that part of the problem with engaging with culture is also harmony based. I think, I, I really do think that like, like, uh, like clever reharmonizations, like, are is like it's clever to a certain subset of your listenership who are probably musicians and then yep. everybody else is like ah ah it sounds weird it's not really yep. impressive it's like stunt music for other musicians and then for everybody and we else. gotta stop it's like we gotta stop relying on other musicians to take care of us too i mean that's right i found myself in that boat where i was like i don't want to write music for people who are musicians i want to write music for everybody else right right i want everybody else to listen to my i mean like i'm not gonna necessarily really change how i write right but i'm gonna you know trust my instincts i'm i'm very similar to you in, in that way and to the kind of harmony i'm drawn to and kind of things i want to write you know yeah I, I get the feeling that you and i probably 
like have similar like taste growing up and everything like that. Uh, um, it, yeah. it does seem to seem to be the case. Uh, so, so yeah, man, I, at the same time, like it's hard for the, the, I feel bad even saying that. Cause you know, there are musicians that like, like, uh, this is now part of their part of them, you know? Yep. So for me to say this isn't totally fair either. I just, it's just kind of like a little bit of get off my lawn, kind of like angry man yells at cloud sort of stuff, you know? Uh, sure. but I, I, well, we're all on this timeline, right? We're all, it's like, we all start with, this is what we think we're supposed to do. And then mm-hmm. we go from there. I mean, it's like all you can do. Am I supposed to do this? I guess I'll do that. Cool. Right. I'm going to make a really weird sounding jazz record. Cause I think that's what I'm supposed to do. And I'm going to, you know, it's like, then as you know, as you've done in your career, you've taken all these various different things, comics and music and all these things, and you've put them together and created these really meaningful and impactful things. And it's like, I feel a lot like I'm getting to that place as an artist myself where I'm like, I do like to sing and write songs and write yeah. lyrics and write yeah. poetry. And I've always been into those things. So why have I denied myself those explorations for so yeah. many years? Let's put it all together, you know. Yeah, and I and uh, I really have enjoyed the stuff that you've shared that has your singing on. I think you're it's really oh, good. Thanks, man. So yeah, I love I, I really I really love that stuff. Um, yeah, man. That's great to hear. Um, well, cool. Uh, let's leave it on that note. I like that. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. We're gonna link all of Dave's stuff. If is there any particular place people should go to find you? Uh, I probably am on Twitter the most, I guess. Chisholm Dave, okay. my last name, then my first name. And then also TikTok, which is Dave Chisholm Comics. All right. We'll link all that stuff in the show notes. Uh, thank you, Dave, uh, for, for talking to me, man. This was awesome. Hey, Adam. Thanks, man. Take care. All right. 